All right. Well, good morning, Story Church. I got to say, it is a pretty awesome sight to see both Travis and I, our wives, Katie and Allison, sitting in service with us. Can we just can we applaud that for a second? And uh, I, just heard, I just heard that we have 33 elementary kids over there today. So you need to continue praying that God brings someone with some high capacity and some energy to handle those kiddos. Well, um, good morning, church. My name is Stephen. I am one of the pastors here at Story Church. And um, I grew up in Sonoma County, so I'm kind of new to... Southern California. My wife is from Escondido, so I've had a little bit of taste of it, but definitely not from the greater LA area. So before we get started, I have to confess a couple things, and you have to bear with me. One, I'm a Giants fan. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's why I wrote pause in my notes here. I knew it was going to happen. Um, number two, I'm a San Jose Sharks fan. And number three, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan. <laughs> so I really don't want to talk about 2002, and I don't want to talk about 2013 or 2014 this morning. Um, and I don't honestly have a whole lot of nice things to say about the Kings or the Dodgers. But um, I have one thing I have to kind of concede, and that's LeBron James is, is just the best basketball player alive today. I think it's really, it pains me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It pains me to say that as a, as a Warriors fan, but I just I have to concede to this man's dominance in the NBA over and over and over. It's not been too great lately, but even that, I mean, you, that doesn't take his title away from him. I don't want to have a conversation about the GOAT because, you know, you'll lose that. That's, there's no way that you can say LeBron is the GOAT. But, but today, he is certainly the best. And um, one of my closest friends back in Texas... He actually grew up near the Akron, Ohio area, and he was telling me about when he was a junior, and all these kids started talking about this kid named LeBron James, who started moving up in the rankings, and you know, getting, his, his stats were better than most of the seniors in the state, and uh, he and his friends are obviously, they're kind of working their way up in the system and kind of wanted to establish themselves, and they're kind of questioning, like, what is going on? Who is this kid? Is this real? Is this some kind of fluke? Was there a you know, mistake in the stat keepers or whatnot? But sure enough, a few years later, all of us, the whole world would see who LeBron James was. Um, he signed a $90 million contract with Nike as an 18-year-old and then was drafted at number one overall in the NBA. And I say all that to say, just kind of LeBron James is really associated in our culture with just this idea of being number one or being, the, the, being first in all things. And we all have to kind of agree, even if you don't like him or you don't like his team, I don't love him a whole lot. But I have to, I have to agree that he's just, he's just phenomenal. But... LeBron's greatness, whether it's in his, his career in sports or his business savvy, it really just pales in comparison to the person we're going to talk about in our passage today. We're going to see in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, that only one person is matchless. Only one person is the greatest, is first, and that with whom no other can compare. We're going to see this persona and the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to see our hopeless state without him, and then we're going to see what it means for us to place our hope in him. So last week, Travis walked us through a little bit of an overview of the book of Colossians and then the first 14 verses. And we saw over and over how Colossians is a book that is just saturated with Jesus. Jesus is referenced over and over and over. And I can promise you that that is going to continue this morning as we finish through part of chapter one. So I want to take a look again at Colossians one, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20 for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, if you've read Paul's epistles, certainly this epistle, Paul just kind of loves run-on sentences, and he loves just listing a bunch of different things. And if you're like me, it can be kind of easy sometimes to just kind of nod your head and go, yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. You're kind of saying the same thing over and over in a lot of different ways. But I think it's really important for us this morning to pause and really dive a little bit deeper into what Paul is saying about Jesus. So Paul first is going to show us how Jesus is supreme over creation, but that involves both old creation and new creation, physical creation and the church. In verse 15, Paul begins by making this statement about Jesus's core identity. He says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the word in the original Greek in scripture for image is icon, which might sound familiar to you because that is where we get the English word icon. But here it it carries a particularly weighty meaning. When we think of icon, we think of something that just represents or symbolizes something else, but in and of itself, it's pretty much worthless and doesn't have any value. However, Jesus is not merely some symbolic representation of God. Jesus is the very manifestation of who God is. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this is a super important distinction, especially when we're talking about people in our culture, because today people don't really have an issue with Jesus being some kind of a good teacher or a wise person or an influential figure. The issue is when we say that Jesus is actually God. And so it's really paramount for us to understand that Paul is being super clear right here that Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. He's not just some teacher. He's not just some man. And in the second half of verse 15, we see a statement about Jesus's relationship to creation. Paul starts by saying that Jesus is firstborn of all creation. And you might be thinking, how could Jesus be the firstborn? I I thought we just said Jesus was God. And I thought Adam was born first. So what's the deal there? We often use the word firstborn to describe birth order. But here, it's actually referencing Psalm 87, sorry, Psalm 89, verse 27, which is a prophetic passage about Jesus. And it says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And so here, it's really a title of status, and it, it's a metaphor that distinguishes Jesus from all other things created, but as before them in time and supreme in all of creation. And again, this makes sense as Paul continues into verse 16 and 17, where we're reminded that Jesus created everything. Paul goes on to say, Jesus created everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, including thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Jesus, I mean, it's obvious that he is over all things. And Paul really tries to clear up any confusion that we could have about the created order by summarizing it in this way. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is above everything. He's before everything. Jesus created everything, and he is the one who holds all things together. One scholar I was reading puts it this way. The universe is not self-sufficient, as in the deistic model, nor are individuals, no matter how much they may deceive themselves into thinking that they are. Even those who do not acknowledge Christ's reign and those who actively oppose him are entirely dependent on him. So creation exists because of Jesus, and the only reason that it continues to exist is only through Jesus. Next, we're going to see, but Paul transitions a bit from talking about Jesus' relationship to physical creation 
towards the church. So verse 18 says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we see Jesus is not only overall creation, but Jesus is the founder and the head, the leader of the church. And that includes our church. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 puts it this way, as we're instructed to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together from every joint, which is it equipped. When each, is working par- which each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So just like creation, the church exists only because of Jesus, and he is the one who is holding it all together. And then Paul brings back this word again of firstborn, And here he says firstborn from the dead. So Jesus is not only firstborn from the beginning, but he's also firstborn from the dead. And why is that? So that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is another important word to parse out for us because I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning and use the word preeminent in your conversation with your friends or your spouse or when you were meeting people here this morning. But the word comes from the Greek word proteo, which means to be held in the highest rank in a group. And this follows, again, the trend of the passage so far. Jesus is first in all things. You can see what I meant about Paul not being known exactly for subtlety. He kind of just keeps hammering the point over and over and over, telling us who Jesus is. And verses 19 through 20, bear with me, we're almost done, is no exception. Paul says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. But then Paul shifts from who Jesus is to what he's done. Namely, that he brought reconciliation and that he's made peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus entered into our world, our dark world that was infected by sin and death, and he brought new life after dying and being victoriously raised from the dead. And it says this was for the purpose of making reconciliation and peace. All right, we got that chunk done of the list. You know, these past few weeks have been pretty crazy if you've been watching the news or if you live in California. There's been some insane natural disasters here in the U.S. and particularly in California. There's a church that Allison and I first attended when we moved out to Texas for me to attend seminary um, that had a a tornado rip through their sanctuary and their kids' building and just destroyed most of their property. And fires have been roaring through both northern and southern California uh, for the past couple of weeks, and it's just been pretty devastating. I've seen some of the most insane mass evacuations and, I mean, power outages and just all, I mean, you you guys have experienced it here in San Bernardino County. And if you don't know a little bit of our story, my mom actually lost her house in the Tubbs fire two years ago in Santa Rosa, California. And so over these last two weeks, I'm literally writing my sermon and I have a separate window open with a map of the new fire, the Kincaid fire, that was just creeping up, keep creeping down towards Santa Rosa again, towards my mom's house. And she just had it rebuilt and moved in a week and a half ago. It's just been absolutely crazy. And there's just a certain kind of helplessness that we feel when we, we look at these natural disasters we realize how totally fragile and totally weak we are as human beings. And I think most of us kind of feel jarred when these things happen because we live under this kind of facade that we're in control because we've worked really hard or we've saved and invested our money. We have our homes, our relationships. We've put protections around our things and it feels like things are kind of solid and we've worked really hard to build all of that together. But the reality is that our relationships, our, our jobs, our family members, our physical items, all of these things can be taken away so easily and so quickly. To reference LeBron again, I remember while I'm watching this fire, and then I saw some of the ones in Southern California, I saw a tweet from him saying he was evacuated with his family. Like, no one is protected how much money or how successful you are. Like, it doesn't matter. All of us are, are so weak and so vulnerable. 
And all of us have been affected by the devastating consequences of sin, even if you've not been affected by these natural disasters. Because sin has caused a lot of brokenness in our lives. And that comes from our own sin and the consequences of our own behavior that, that reap negative benefits for ourselves. It happens when other people sin against us and we feel hurt and brokenness from how they treat us. But it also happens as we've seen these natural disasters. Just, our world is just broken because of sin and it affects creation itself. And this implicit reality here in verse 20 is that there was a need for reconciliation and peace. It wouldn't mention Jesus came to bring those things if we didn't already need them. Because the natural sinful state that we're in is one of brokenness, division, and conflict. And so this brokenness is real and we all see it. So you kind of have a couple options. Either you live your life just trying to avoid it and trying to protect yourself and avoid problems and running from them. And then eventually it still comes into your life. Or you walk in fear, worrying about what, what's going to happen to you. And then when it happens, you fall into despair when life is difficult. But there is just a much better option here in scripture. We yield to the astonishing person and work of Jesus Christ. We saw that Jesus is God. He is supreme over all creation. That means plants, animals, people, leaders, governments, countries, and the whole universe. He's not over some things or over most things. Jesus is over everything. He made the church, including our church, and he is in charge. We can entrust it to him. So there's comfort, even in the chaos, when we rest in Christ and we surrender the veil of control. And because this is true, friends, he is actually in charge of everything. It, he's not like this Wizard of Oz that's hiding behind the curtain saying, oh, don't worry about what's going on, just trust me and stay in the dark. Again, we saw Jesus, God actually sent his son into our world so that we could see God, we could know him. He, he came into the brokenness and the darkness of our world to make peace because we needed it. And Paul is going to get into this a little bit more on a few verses. But the big picture here, very clearly, again, Paul's incredible emphasis and going over and over is Jesus is preeminent. He is first. He is matchless. He's in control. And he brings us peace because we need it. Now, verse 21 is going to show us why what we heard is good news. It's not merely a bunch of theological information, again, to nod our heads at and just go check. Okay, I got that sort of way in my brain. So let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So Paul turns from proclaiming who Christ is to address us, the readers. And he wants to remind us of the really bad news of what it was like before Christ. Bad news that as believers, we often forget what it was like without him. We don't think about what our lives would be like had we not encountered Christ. And then unbelievers can't even comprehend this concept either. And that's why it's so important that Paul has this here. And this dark reality is threefold, alien, hostile, and evil. So we're going to start by talking about the second two, hostile and evil. Apart from Christ, we aren't just distant from God or hesitant about God. We are enemies of God. And this hostility, it says, is not something that was just secluded to our minds in some kind of a philosophical position. It permeates our lives and our actions. Paul says that we were doing evil deeds. And the word for evil here in the Greek is pornos, which is where we get the word pornography. And it literally means morally or socially worthless, wicked, vicious, and degenerate. So our very nature was opposed to God and we were doing evil things against him. Not a super chipper description of our state before Christ, is it? But in a world that considers humanity to be generally good and generally kind and have good motives, we really need to emphasize that there's some really bad news that they don't know about or sometimes they don't want to believe. 
And they have to understand that bad news before the good news of Jesus is good news to them. Okay, so we're going to go back to the first description of the state apart from Christ, alien. Now, when you hear alien, we aren't talking about E.T. or storming Area 51 to find the UFOs, if you guys paid attention to that shenanigans. I think there's like 10 people that actually showed up and asked permission to get in, and then they were just like, no, get out of here. <laughs> but uh, so this word here for alien, what it really means is it evokes the experience of a person who's being excluded from corporate life as a citizen while living in a particular country. So I have a story for you about a friend of mine named Afshin Ziafat. And he and his family, they fled the Iranian Revolution in the 1970s to come to the U.S. And his experience as an elementary-age kid moving to America during the hostage crisis evokes this idea of being alienated. So just imagine with me for a second. He's trying to learn English. He's trying to get oriented to a new culture. He moved to Houston, Texas, which is probably not the most welcoming place for someone from Iran to come and move um, <laughs> during that time in particular. And He's, he and his brother, their experience at school, they just got bullied every day. They got beat up. The people in their neighborhood slashed his parents' tires. They threw rocks with nasty notes on them through his window. Like, just about in every way you could possibly imagine. He didn't feel like he was from a different country. He felt like he was from a different planet. His identity, his citizenship, was totally seen as a foreigner and as the enemy. And during those particularly tumultuous political times, people saw his family as the enemy, as the representation of the enemy from afar, even though they were fleeing. I think this is helpful for us to think about our state before Christ, because we were aliens with an identity that just didn't belong. We couldn't be near him. But also, on the flip side, we were really like those ignorant people that were hateful of him and his family and treating them that way, because we saw God, even though we were the aliens, we saw God as alien. We saw him as the outsider, and we were guilty of evil atrocities against him. So I say all that not to throw guilt and shame on all of us, but I just I think we need to feel the weight of what separation from Christ is and that that was something we did to ourselves. It was the result of our own actions. Verse 21 here is just a really brief word for us, kind of in transition, but it's got a really sharp impact that's important for us to pause and consider. And really what that is is that apart from Christ, we are utterly separated and we are without hope. But there's hope coming. Look with me at verse 22. Verse 22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to him. So the hope of Christ is so much more than just having peace in difficult circumstances, as we talked about before. It's not less than that, but it is far greater than that. Because of Christ, we have been reconciled, and we can now be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And again, there's three, those three words contrast so strongly with the three words before, that we were aliens, hostile, and evil. And so now we're able to be brought near in his presence, and we're presented as perfect as Jesus is, because Jesus is holy, blameless, and above reproach, and we were not. Our clothes were stained and dirty beyond all recognition. There was nothing that we could do to be made clean. But Christ's death and resurrection purifies us so that we could be made new. So Paul uses blameless and above reproach, where essentially mean the exact same thing. Again, just to compound this stunning reality that we were being made morally without fault or defect, which is something none of us actually feel is true. It's only because of Jesus Christ that that can be true. You know, our culture, I think, is kind of rooted in this concept of the American dream whether it's stories of rags to riches or David and Goliath stories. We love in, our, in visual mediums of art and film, we love these stories of people overcoming all odds. Everybody loves an underdog, an underdog story, whether you're into sports or music, they're all there. 
And uh, Alice and I have been watching this uh, cooking show um, that is kind of one of those competition cooking shows. And if you've ever watched pretty much any of these shows, whether it's American Idol or anything like that, somehow every character has like this amazing underdog story and they came from this really rough background. And so we're watching this show and there's, you know, all these like really epic, like, you know, top down view of, of the kitchen as they're doing stuff. And then it just like awkwardly cuts into this like really dramatic like interviews with them where they're like, oh, this is where I came from. And like footage of their restaurant was like filmed with a potato. It's like all shaky to make you feel bad for them and whatnot. I don't, know how it's, I don't know if they filter at least contestants by their stories or their talent, but everyone seems to have one of those stories. And these are really inspirational stories. I mean, they, they're, in our, they're in movies we watch, they're in, t- they're in TV shows, but I think it's really important for us to realize how much we kind of gravitate towards that story and how much that kind of American dream story is rooted really deeply in our hearts. This idea of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or drawing from strength within to succeed, they really do make a a compelling film and story, but this can also really cloud our understanding of the gospel. The gospel isn't that we realized the truth and that we worked hard and white-knuckled our way out of our own brokenness. The gospel story isn't a story about finding strength within and accomplishing the impossible. The gospel story isn't about us. But on the flip side, the gospel also isn't that Jesus just bailed us out of jail and we're on, you know, work release program and have to sort of try to make it up to him afterwards. This is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus took our spot on death row. He died in our place. He had our crimes attached to himself, and he gave us new names, new identities, and a completely new life in him. Our record was made completely clean as if we had never sinned because Jesus took our sins on himself. Again, the gospel isn't that we worked our way into God's favor, but it's also not a story of making good on God's grace to pay him back. In the same way that we didn't deserve his grace to begin with, we can't earn it back either. That is love. That is the love of Jesus Christ. And this is why the gospel we believe is the most beautiful and amazing story and why we call ourselves story to church, because that story is the gospel. So where's Paul going with all this? Well, let's recap kind of what we've seen so far. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's first. He created all things. He's in charge. He's in control. He reconciled us to himself, making peace. And then Paul reminded us of our state before Christ and how dark it was and then how amazing and incredible it was that Christ made us clean by his death. So this brings us to verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what's our response then to this incredible hope and to what Christ has done for us? Well, Paul says that if believers continue in the faith, they're stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, I know the presence of this word if at the beginning of this sentence kind of could cause some fear and anxiety in us. And so Paul's not trying to cause doubt in, 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 our, in our hearts or in the readers of this letter, but rather he's using an if-then statement, a logical connection between persevering in the faith and the benefits of security in the gospel. Paul's desire here is to encourage believers to continue abiding in Christ and reminding them over and over of the security and the hope that only comes from the gospel. This passage is where we get the theological principle, perseverance of the saints, And just to double down with Paul here, I want to remind you again, as we just said, the gospel's good news because it's about who Jesus is and what he's done. The reconciliation in Christ is apart from our effort, and it's a result of his love for us, not our good deeds. 
And Paul just reminded us before how evil, hostile, alien, and without hope that we were before Christ. So just to be clear, Paul is not suggesting that we can lose our salvation, but rather that we are straining to increase in our faith and reminding us to abide in him. Philippians 3, 12 through 16 explains this better than I ever could. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, so I'm going to use a little bit more technical grammatical language that'll probably make Jana and any of our other English teachers really happy, but you're just going to have to bear with me here. So this idea of the word stable here in verse, 20, verse 23, it's a perfect passive participle, right? <laughs> um, and all you need to know about that is it, it's describing something that's happening to the recipient of this verb. It's not something that you're doing, it's happening to you. So this idea of stable, really what it means is that we are continually growing in our faith and the Lord is making us stable. He is making us more secure because he is stable and secure. But a helpful literal, literal translation here could be with your foundation established and your structure immovable. Again, because though we are being made more stable, the one that is stable is perfectly stable and he's the one that we rest on. And this really kind of uses the, the use of these words here. They're, they're meant to kind of evoke architectural ideas, like physical buildings that are stable. Ephesians 3, 17 through 18 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, as it continues on. That word grounded in this passage is the same Greek word. So because Christ is our foundation, and as Ephesians goes on to say, he is our cornerstone, we are building our lives on him. So he is the only place that is trustworthy. He is the only foundation that, can actually, that will actually stand. So when I was in eighth grade, my science class had this group project, and it was basically a, a group project and a competition to build the most stable bridge out of nothing but toothpicks and glue. And I ended up in one of those groups that, shall we say, was more interested in the word group than the word project. And they thought it would be really cool to come up with titles for all of the roles on our team. They were trying to make it really creative. And I was kind of a nerd, so that wasn't really you know, exciting to me. And I quickly realized that when they came up with the role of architect and gave it to me, they came up with these titles just so they could make me do all of the work, basically. <laughs> but again, I was a huge nerd. Math was my favorite class, so I was actually kind of excited <laughs> to do all of the work. And so I did some research on my own, you know, had to pull up some encyclopedias back when that was a thing that you had to actually do. I didn't have Wikipedia to help me out there. Um, and very quickly, I realized I needed to talk to somebody who was a professional. Again, I know this is an eighth grade project, but I was very serious. And so I had to win this competition because everything is a competition. And so I found this guy. My family had a, had a friend that was a bona fide architect. So I met with him, and he kind of showed me some, some drawings from projects he'd worked on, kind of described some general um, architecture uh, principles with me. But then he shifted towards bridges, and he told me that there was one geometric principle that pretty much governs how bridges are built and how they're stable, and that's the triangle. Now, again, I don't know if you're expecting to get some grammar lessons and some geometry lessons today, but Travis isn't here today. This is Steven, so you're getting some nerdy stuff going on here. <laughs> So here we go. Triangles are used in bridges because they evenly distribute the weight. And the reason is because they used to use rectangles or squares before, 
But if you can visualize, you put pressure on something that has a square as its base, and it's just going to buckle. It's just going to bend. And so bridges used to be really small, and there couldn't be a whole lot of weight. So it had to be like 1% at a time or one small amount of weight at a time going across. And then they realized if they took a triangle and they put a beam in between, it prevented them from buckling and created all this stability. And really what that was, was it was adding triangles. So basically ever since then, bridges have gotten more and more stable, and this is, this is universally the way that bridges are designed. So all that to say, you bet that I immediately just threw a ton of triangles in our bridge in the way I designed it. And uh, so we built our bridge, we, we brought it to class, ready for presentation. Our group was going last as far as presenting. And what they did was they essentially added more and more weight to the top of the bridge to see how long it would take before it buckled. So I'm kind of walking around class and talking to some other, my other classmates and I noticed nobody's using triangles. So I'm like, here we go, this is gonna be awesome. <laughs> Uh, and I asked them, like, hey, so, you know, how did you decide how to, how to build your bridge? And everyone just kind of gives me all these, like, oh, you know, I thought this looked stable, or this, this seems, like, logical to me, or I thought this looked good. And all the other bridges definitely looked cooler and more interesting than ours. But when bridge testing time came, one by one, it didn't take much. Each bridge just completely crumbled to the ground. And then our group came, and we at, at, put our bridge up there, and literally the teacher added all of the weight that she brought, and our bridge just totally stood tall. Triangles for the win, right? <laughs> um, as a side note, there's a guy in my class who's also very competitive named Matt, and he got really mad, so he came over and stood on top of the bridge so it would break, but it took like 30 seconds for it to break. So, but hey, it's, it's toothpicks, it's triangles. You know, a human being is a lot more powerful, so triangles can only do as much as they can do. So Proverbs 21.2 says this, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. That's our human nature. Just like my classmates, we think we know best. We think we know intuitively how things should be, how things should work. But then when we live our lives that way and we're tested, we crumble just like those bridges and we fall apart. Paul here is warning the Colossian church to not shift from the hope of the gospel. The gospel, he says, that is his foundation as a minister. Now, there are many stories out there and promises of what will give you happiness and stability. And you could spend all your money on self-help books and life coaches and go to various different groups to be a part of or obsess in different hobbies or find pleasure in different ways. But all of those things, just like those bridges, they can't hold the weight of stability that you need as your foundation and they all will crumble. And just as Paul said earlier in verse five, our gospel hope is protected and secured for us in heaven. As Travis said last week, we can't earn it. We can't lose it. God has given it to us and it's untouchable during his care. And I know we've often been in seasons where we struggle to trust the Lord and we try to reorient our lives to kind of compensate for fear or anxiety. And so church, this is why we need one another. Paul's writing this, this, this book to Christians. He's reminding them of truths that they already know. He's not giving them new information. It's because we need to hear these things over and over. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and we need to encourage one another to continually and intentionally place our hope in Christ when we get distracted and place it in other things. And I know it's difficult when the diagnosis is worse than you could ever imagined or when you've been job searching for months with no movement, or when a, a situation in a relationship or with a family member is just so painful and it feels like there's no hope and you don't know what to do. But here is the main point here. When we put our trust in the gospel hope of Jesus Christ, we have his stability and his security that none of our circumstances can have any impact on. So this, this passage has given us an opportunity to marvel at just really just a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. 
And we've been reminded of the darkness apart from Jesus and his incredible grace and mercy to us that he made us clean by dying in our place. And just as we discussed, we, we, have to, we have to trust this truth that he is the only place where our hope will be secure and where it won't return void. So I think there are a few important responses um, to what Paul has to say to us today. First, for the unbeliever, I just want to say, if, any, if, if you're here today, I'm just so glad you're here. I'm glad you sat through a long sermon with some, some technical jargon and a lot of reading of God's word. And I just want you to know that this same loving Savior, that the forgiveness of sins that he provides, the secure hope that he has, that that is available to you to make peace with you, to reconcile you to him. We've seen today that the hope of the gospel is not about anything you can do. It doesn't matter what your past is or what you've done or where you are today. That God, God doesn't care about those things because Jesus is the one who does the work for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way, better than I can ever imagine. By grace, you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. So if that's you today, man, we would love to pray with you. If you'd like to come and talk to one of us after the service or talk to someone outside. But during our last worship set, I'm going to ask Jana and Hector to head off into the corner here by the red table. And if that's you and you just want to pray with someone, you want to talk to someone, please do that today. Feel free to do that today. We would love to talk with you. And for the believer, I think our response is really three key things here. First, worship, repentance, and then encouragement. So first, worship. We worship together the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for his person, his character, and his love for us. Then we repent together of where we've exerted or we've just believed kind of this false sense of control over our lives. And instead, we, we remind each other to intentionally place our hope, place our trust only in him. And lastly, we're encouraged together that regardless of our circumstances, that he is our stable rock and that he is our hope that can't be taken away, that we don't have to find that or make that ourselves because we can run to him. And I know there are a lot of painful situations in this room right now. I know, I know a lot of your stories. I know there's painful marriage and family situations. There's anxious financial struggles and there's the weight of shame because of past sins or current struggles. I just want you to know, as I read and studied this passage these last few weeks, the Lord has used it in my own life just to confront my sin and show me where I think I'm in charge and I'm kind of trying to run the show. Again, I'm, as I'm watching these fires, literally while I'm studying this passage, I just see God speaking so clearly through his word to me that I needed to hear it. And then I had to just trust him. I like to control things. I like to, you ask Travis, when we're working together on, on anything behind the scenes, I love to have a plan. I don't like risk. I don't like taking, you know, taking chances. I want to have a plan. I want to have everything put in place, but I have to trust the Lord because he, only he is stable. And life, this life we have, it's not stable. It's not predictable. It's not consistent. So it's my prayer for each of you this morning, for myself included, that we would place our hope firmly in the gospel, that the Lord would give each of us peace that we need and that he would be our foundation. <laughs> It's my prayer that you would persevere in Christ despite difficult circumstances and surrender to his power and to his goodness in our lives. Bow your head with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that this, this passage was planned out. God, that the schedule for where we would be preaching this, Lord, was planned out so far ahead of time, Lord, and that um, we just see you moving. We see how living and active and authoritative your word is. So God, I pray that for each of us in this room, we would be encouraged, that we would, God, that we would find a renewed hope in you. And God, that you would help us to repent from, of, our, of our ways, of our sin, of our control, or that we would, we would surrender those things and that we would run to your feet. 
So Father, I thank you for who you are, for what you've done, and just the small glimpse that you've given us of how beautiful and wonderful Jesus Christ is to us, Lord. I pray that we would carry that with us and it would, it would bring us encouragement, Lord, when life is difficult. In your name we pray, amen.